The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of digital media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute present The Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. If you like us, please help us by subscribing and by reviewing us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you might listen. And don't forget to sign up for weekly updates and study questions at formedbookclub.ignatius.com. Welcome to the Formed Book Club. We may include our discussion of The Spirit of the Liturgy by Joseph Carlo Rassinger. We hope we will. But uh, as I reread this book, I find myself underlining more things and having more things I want to comment about. But rather than spend too much time on telling you why it's taking more time, let's get right to it. Uh, We are in the final chapter of the final part the body and the liturgy, and we're on section three called posture. And the first remark I'll make is that uh, interesting to me that in this book, which is not that long of a book, how much time he spends on posture and on kneeling. Uh, And I like the way he begins. I can just see the little smirk on his face on page 198 slash 184. We talked about kneeling at the bottom. There are groups of no small influence, we're trying to talk us out of kneeling. Quote, it doesn't suit our culture, they say, parenthesis, which culture? (laughs) Quote, it's not right for a grown man to do this. He should face God on his feet, close quotes. Or again, quote, it's not appropriate for a redeemed man. He has been set free by Christ and doesn't need to kneel anymore, close quote. If we look at history, we can see that the Greeks and Romans rejected kneeling. Again, he's going to talk about kneeling, which I think is a very contemporary question. What does he do? He jumps back to ancient history. Middle of the page, Aristotle called a barbaric form of behavior. And he gives a quote there. Further down, he concludes, the kneeling of Christians is not a form of enculturation in resisting customs. We didn't get it from somewhere else. It is quite the opposite an expression of Christian culture, Christian culture, which transforms the existing culture through a new, deeper knowledge and experience of God. I mean, that that says a lot that, that yes, we want to be respectful of and uh, make use of all the achievements of human culture, but within the recognition that God has revealed himself to us in such a way that he's given us standards and forms of culture which transcend or are meant to permeate and, and elevate what's already there. I Look, let's take our own lives, okay? I mean, as human beings, we brush our teeth and we eat breakfast and we, you know, bathe and that sort of stuff. Well, that's fine. And we you should do that the more civilized you are. But as human beings, we wouldn't be kneeling down, singing psalms, receiving the Eucharist. That comes from God. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in my rhetorical mode, so you guys have to slow me down here. 
uh, because I was talking about kneeling, proskunane, which can mean three different things, and prostrating, holding one knees, or simply kneeling. Oh, wait, before you jump to that, Go though, okay. he says kneeling comes from the Bible. That's right. All right. And so he says, he says, not from any culture, it comes from the Bible and its knowledge of God. And my question is, well, wasn't that a culture? The, 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 didn't the Bible get come out of a culture? Didn't the no, Jewish no, no, no. practices? The, the Bible didn't come out of a culture. The Bible created a culture. I mean, obviously there were people there, you know, but, but that's the whole point of Mount Zion is God is saying, here's how you behave. Here's what your rules are, and here's how you worship. It wasn't if you said, "Oh, well, let's let's see what the Canaanites are doing, or what the Hittites are doing." Right, right. But I mean, okay. So let me rephrase the question. So, is the is the kneeling that he's saying comes from the Bible? Is it in the law, the the liturgical laws in that he, that were given to Moses, or does it, is it, it, it? It's in the Psalms. It's in Daniel. Yeah, but that's not the um, what you talked about, Mount Zion. Is the kneeling in any of the things that were given by God to Moses at Mount Zion? Well, he, I don't think he. I, I didn't mention Mount Zion to say that kneeling came directly from there. I mentioned Mount Zion as a response to your thing. Didn't they have a culture? The whole point of of leaving Egypt and, and going to the Promised Land was not just to change their place, but was to develop a divinely ordered culture, and that culture over time. I, it may have been there. I don't know. I, I don't know either. I'm just but trying for to sure understand. sure it's in the Bible. I'm, in the oh, 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 I know it's in the Bible. He comes right out and says that. I'm just trying to, when he says kneeling does not come from any culture, it comes from the Bible. When he's using the word culture, he's referring to some, it doesn't come from a previous culture. Yes. Okay. That would have helped. Okay. That one little word <laughs> would have helped me understand what he's All saying. Because right. I was thinking it was a false dichotomy, Bible and culture. Didn't the Bible, didn't the people of God create a culture? Anyway, it didn't come from a previous no, I mean, that's culture. That's important you bring that up because we'll see that coming later too, and it's come prior to this too, that in music, for example, that enculturation of the word of God, of the gospel, of the church's teaching, of, of you know all our practices, does not simply mean adapting what's there. The church herself has her own culture, which Let's take chant, for example, which can inform other cultures. Right. All right. Uh, you can interrupt now because I'm going to jump to page 202, middle of the page. Well, I do have something right at the end of 200 uh, coming over to 201. Go ahead. Well, it's just that, I mean, I'm not a biblical theologian, and obviously Ratzinger's brilliant. So, yeah, I mean, I, I never thought about um, St. Luke as the kneeling uh, evangelist, but St. Luke, who in his whole work, both the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles, is in a special way the theologian of kneeling prayer, so that's something new to me, tells us that Jesus prayed on his knees. And I just love, this is poetic, uh, as well as being theological. This prayer, the prayer by which Jesus enters into his passion, is an example for us, both as a gesture and in its content. The gesture. Jesus assumes, as it were, the fall of man, lets himself fall into man's fallenness, prays to the Father out of the lowest depths of human dereliction and anguish. He lays his will in the will of the Father's. Not my will, but yours be done. He lays the human will in the divine. So it's insofar as Christ is human that he kneels. 
And so, you know, that, that in itself, you know, coming straight from the gospel means we are human, we should kneel, and Jesus Christ shows us how and why. And and we are fallen, <laughs> you know. Right. He, he was not, but he assumed our fallen nature to show us what the right gestures would be. Uh, I just want to remark in the middle of page 202 there, uh, again, the personal touch. I shall never forget lying on the ground at the time of my own priestly and fiscal ordination. I, I remember that too. It was a very, was a very solemn moment. And, and Good Friday is part of the liturgy when that happens. It's, it's, uh, it's very moving to do that. So he's talking about the gesture of prostration, prostration which yes. is used in the priestly ordination and bishop's ordination. So while you were lying on the ground, what what what, what was you, I thinking? Yeah, or or how, how did you experience that? What did you? How long is this going to last? <laughs> <laughs> well, I get up while I'm tripping over my cat. Because <laughs> that's got to be but a big deal to be lying there on the floor. It is, but many is the time for many decades now that I've been in the chapel praying, saying, Lord, I'm distracted. Lord, I have no thoughts worthy of you, but I'm here. I'm on my knees. Let that be my prayer. Yes. That's my prayer. That is a prayer. That's beautiful. And the same thing, you know, I mean, I forget what I was thinking, except that this is the right place to be, you know? Right. That's beautiful. No, it's that good it seems so uh, appropriate that 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 the the, the priests uh, should prostrate themselves before the altar um, at that moment. And one thing on two hundred three, if we if we got that far, I I'm intrigued. I'm not surprised. I suppose that 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 uh, Cardinal Rassica knows the Knox version of the Bible. Um, I I I, I, don't, I I, I, was the Knox version translated into loads of different languages? Do you know? I just always assumed it was because the whole point of the Knox version, according to Ronald Knox himself, was to translate the Bible into a timeless English. So then it's going to be tra translated into other languages that rather defeats that object. And if it, if, it, if it hasn't been, it would imply that Ratzinger studied the Knox version of the Bible in English. I have to see what the German says because it may be that the German he used was closer to what the translation in the Knox Bible would have, you know, was. Got it. Yes. Uh, or maybe he knew that because I, his English was not that good when I first met him. That's for sure. Of course, that was his spoken English, and I'm sure he could read it. Uh, but then he goes on to say the Knox version, this is his oh, writing yeah, okay. now, not the parentheses of the sources, yeah, yeah. but the Knox version brings out the bodily expression while the RSV shows what is happening interiorly. Oh. So that, so that's, that's what really intrigued me, because I just assumed that the Knox version never you know, wasn't translated because the whole point of it was to translate, you know, from uh, um, from the Vulgate into, a, a, in Knox's words, a timeless English. So why would you translate something from the, you know, that had been translated from the Vulgate into English and then back into a I, foreign language? I mean... I, I suspect that he's actually referring to the English here. I suspect. Right. Should, that does, you know, as, as Father but said, as does, Father however, says, he needs to go back. Might have been, he, but no, but what, what you say there, this is clearly he knew about the Knox. He Bible. knows about the Knox version. Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure if Knox translated from the Vulcan. He might have. He did, he, he did Father. Okay. That, that, was why, that was why the Knox Bible was supplied. 
supplant it because okay. uh, they said, well, we, we need it. We need a translation from the from the earliest sources, from okay. the Greek and the Hebrew. Uh, yeah. so it was from the Vulgate. All right. Hmm. But that would be interesting. If you look up the German, let me know what you find. All right, I'll do that when we're finished here. On page 204, turn four, uh, he just summarizes here the paragraph at the bottom. Uh, I have lingered over these texts because they bring to life something important. In the two passages that we looked at most closely, the spiritual and bodily meaning of proskunity, prostrate, kneel, pray, are really inseparable. The bodily gesture itself is the bearer of the spiritual meaning, which is precisely that of worship. So that that is the gesture of worship. Next page, end of that paragraph at the top, worship is one of those fundamental acts that affect the whole man. That is why bending the knee before the presence of the living God is something we cannot abandon. Uh, it has been abandoned in some places. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been in masses, uncomfortably so, but where uh, sitting down is the main gesture that you have. You stand for the gospel, but the rest you sit down for. Not right. I mean, obviously, if you're in an infirmary and people in wheelchairs. Yeah. Uh, but I still remember, as a young Jesuit priest up in the infirmary at USF, there was a priest, Father Rossi. He was in his 80s. He was, he was infirm. But uh, I'd go up there sometimes when we have mass up there. And uh, to see him genuflect and kneel, you could tell it, it was difficult for him. I mean, he was, you know, but I, I thought that was inspiration to me, you know. He's going to he's going to express that gesture for as long as he can. Mm -hmm. Well, the other thing I loved about that passage as well, Father, is the, the fact that you know that the, the Cardinal Ratzinger points out that we are uh, 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 both soul and body, and therefore, because we're soul and body, I mean, his phrase is. Uh, well, the spiritual act must, by its very nature, because the psychosomatic, psychosomatic unity of man expresses itself in the bodily gesture. Because we're body and soul, not purely spirit, then body language is part of the way we speak. So obviously, clearly, that these sort of gestures are crucial for our communicating uh, to, to God, to ourselves and to others. You're going to say something? Well, he, well he talks about the inability to kneel on 207, about it being the very essence of the diabolical. And here he means not inability, I'm in a wheelchair. He means the unwillingness. Right. The yeah. unwillingness to kneel is actually the essence of the diabolical. Strong words. We'll return to the Forum Book Club with Father Joseph Fessio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts.
Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to the Formed Book Club with Father Joseph Fezio, Vivian Dudreau, and Joseph Pierce. Well, back on page 206, into that paragraph at the top, kneeling is not only a Christian gesture, but a Christological one, and that refers back to the idea of Jesus kneeling in prayer. And then that beautiful, I love this in Philippians, that hymn, you know, yes. although he himself was God, one with the Father, the ultimate... Uh, poetic expression of Jesus humbling himself, which goes back to your passage, Joseph, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus humbling himself. And so, my goodness, if God can humble himself, who are we not to? Right. Uh, let's see here. Well, that passage you referred to, bottom page 207, let's read that, where it says the sayings of one of the desert fathers, uh, the devil was compelled by God to show himself to a certain Abba, Father, you know, Apollo. He looked black and ugly with frighteningly thin limbs, but most strikingly, he had no knees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see here. Page 208. Well, bottom of page 207. Uh, uh, the expression used by St. Luke to describe the kneeling of Christians, face, tagonata, is unknown in classical Greek. Didn't have a word for it. A few lines down, it may well be that kneeling is in the modern culture, insofar as it is a culture. Right. <laughs> I mean, he, he had a wicked sense of humor, you know. It was just kind of un underplayed. Uh, anyway, is unknown in class. Uh, uh, for this culture has turned away from the faith and no longer knows the one, capital O, before whom kneeling is a right, indeed the intrinsically necessary gesture. And this is a beautiful sentence. The man who learns to believe learns also to kneel. And a faith or a liturgy no longer familiar with kneeling would be sick at the core. Fairly strong words for a mild man. Yes. Now I have a question about that because isn't it true that in the Eastern Rite liturgies, they remain stand, they use profound bows, and they stand, but there's not a lot of kneeling, right? It's sick. Well, 
In fact, I like it in one in some ways, but like we we were in Uzurisk, which is north of Vladivostok and primarily probably the eastern part of of Russia. You know, we went to an Orthodox service and and beautiful, of course, church and beautiful voices of deacons singing and everything. But it lasted two and a half hours, and people would go in, and it's all inside the iconostasis, you know, and so they can't see what's going on, and they're going in front of the uh, of the uh, Icons are making profound bows for sure, touching the floor with their hand, and then going out and having a smoke right. for a half hour, coming back in. But I, you may be right. I'm not sure there is any New York. I thought there was not. I, I, I when I was in Moscow in 1998 to interview Solzhenitsyn, I couldn't find a Catholic church. So on Sunday, um, you know, I went, I went to an Orthodox service. Um, and I must have been, you know, the, the, the correct word is disorientation, because in this church, there are about three different rooms. There were priests doing something at two different places, one of which was an altar. The other, I'm not sure, was an altar. And people, as you say, were just wandering around from icon to icon, coming in and leaving in their life. And I, I didn't know, you know, had it started? <laughs> no, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I, I was completely disoriented. I mean, beautiful music. Uh, and I was, I was pleased to be there, and, and the icons are wonderful, and I certainly prayed, but I had absolutely no way of knowing what on earth was going on. Well, Rancho certainly had a great love and appreciation for the Eastern Church right. and the Orthodox Church, so I'm, I, I wish we could ask him now what he thinks about this. Right. You know. Well, I mean, I'm happy for them, for who they are, but I'm, I'm even happier to be a Roman Catholic, Latin Rite Christian. You know, I, I think the the liturgy we have in its proper form is uh, is the way it should be. Uh, let's see here. Well, now he's talking about standing. Yeah. So there is a place for standing in the Roman Rite at the Gospel. And, uh, oh, here he says on two, the top of 209, which is a hint of an answer, okay. among Christians, standing was primarily the Easter form of prayer. Uh-huh. So that has something to do with it. Why yeah. in the Eastern liturgies they stand? For- yeah, and, and further down, standing is the posture of the victor. So, you know, again, it's body language, and it, and, it, and it's fair enough. If, if, if we're standing up to praise God, you know, the, the, in, in, the, in the resurrected Christ, then you obviously right. you're going to want to rise up with him, right? I mean, that's, um, you know, but that clearly well, cannot well, be that, that's of true. That's true, but it's also like Mary Magdalene. You want to fall it. When you see the risen Christ, you want to fall on your face. But this you know? was well, news. True, the, 20th, true, true. the 20th canon of Nicaea decrees that Christians should stand, not kneel during the Easter tide. So that too was, I didn't, I've never heard of such a thing. And But that uh, helps to understand that there is another tradition here, the standing yeah. tradition that came out of the East. And but they do combine it with these profound bows. So it isn't as though they're not showing humility. It's when in the Roman rite, there are the, the showing of humility is by kneeling. And now you take that away. And now we're like you say, we're just sitting in our pews like slobs. So, um, you know, that's a completely different Right. But now it's, it's interesting in that very sentence you read in the Eastern Church, Nicaea, which is for the whole church, but it was held in the East. Uh, Christians who stand, not kneel during Easter Day, yes. that, that presupposes that they're kneeling. Other times. Other times. And they have uh, been kneeling during Easter, but we're saying, no, don't kneel during Easter. Okay, there you go. That's a very close reading of the text to have that Yeah, we, we, we need, you know, we're showing our, our provincialism and our ignorance here of a beautiful tradition 
I mean, at least I feel I know something about the Greek fathers of the church through the Lubach and especially Balthazar and, and Matchinger too. But I don't know much about the details of it, except when I was in Russia and that, you know, it was actually Ukraine. Uh, and uh, we visited this beautiful church in the midst of an impoverished town. The church was the only thing that was kept up. It was a woman's name. No, 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 you don't say the amount. You said it's kind of cross wrong. That's heretical, you know. This is the way. The three fingers, you go like this. I mean, they, you know, they felt that that was a sign of our heresy, mm. was that we made the sign of the cross backwards mm -hmm. anyway. But Father, if, if, if something really intrigued me, you know, I've just written a book for Ignatius Press on the, on the history of Christendom, the good, the bad, and the beautiful. So part of it, the beautiful, is a history of art. And I remember this this work of art that he mentions at the bottom of page two hundred nine here, the Orans. And and, yeah. and again, I read I read various works of art history, secular, and none of them read the, this uh, in the symbolic way that Cardinal Ratzinger does, which is absolutely beautiful. So. May, may, I, may I read it? Sure. So it's at the bottom of the page 209. We are familiar from the painting of the catacombs with the figure of the Orans, the female figure standing and praying with outstretched hands. According to recent research, the Orans normally represents not the praying church, but the soul that has entered into heavenly glory and stands in adoration before the face of God. This has two important aspects. First, the soul is almost always represented as a woman because what is specific to human existence in relation to God is expressed in the form of a woman, the bridal element in regard to the eternal nuptials and also the ready acceptance of the grace bestowed upon us. So again, that his reading of that classic work of art from the catacombs is very symbolic and very beautiful. Yes. Also, on the same topic, during Eastertide in the Divine Office, the Office of Readings, or Matins, goes through the Apocalypse, which is chapter 4, especially I think chapter 7, uh, the Heavenly Liturgy. And they are nailing and prostrating themselves. So there's a scriptural basis in the New Testament as well as the Old mm -hmm. for not just kneeling out of humility or, or uh, out of adoration. Re repentance, but for adoration, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. But this is a beautiful thing about the uh, bridal element. And this is why, you know, the uh, gendered language, and this is the appropriate use of the word, of Christian theology is not something that can be toyed with. You can just start, you know, interchanging one word for another and, and remove the maleness and the femaleness from the language of, 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 of truths of the faith because it actually has, as he says, specific to human existence. These are existential realities that we are helped to understand by the sexual differentiation that God created. Yep. Amen. I want to, I'm going to move to 212 unless someone has something prior to that. That's fine. We must therefore conclude, we must conclude that kneeling and standing are in a unique, in a replaceable way, the Christian posture of prayer. So both kneeling and oh. standing. Then, new paragraph, uh, for, again, he's mild-mannered, you know, but sometimes he comes out pretty strongly. Dancing is not a form of expression for the Christian liturgy. Mm -hmm. Towards the bottom, it is totally absurd 
to try to make the ladies attractive, in quotes, by introducing dancing pantomimes. Later, wherever applause breaks out in the liturgy because of some human achievement, it is a sure sign that the essence of the liturgy has totally, totally disappeared and been replaced by kind of re- religious entertainment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That probably should be put on a bumper sticker too long for that. I guess I'm going to put it on a banner and hang it in the church. I mean, there are... At, at a wedding, at the end of the wedding, when the bride and groom presented, you clap, you know. Uh, that's fine. but Because that's a human achievement. <laughs> those two made it to the altar. Oh, of course, God had a lot to do with it, too, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then he concludes there. Well, next page, a few lines down. Liturgy can only attract people when it looks not at itself, but at God, mm-hmm. when it allows him. And then, three lines below that. None of the Christian rites includes dancing. Mm-hmm. So he's not a big a fan of liturgical dance. Mm-hmm. Now let's say as well, Bob, just, a, just after the passage you read at the bottom of the previous page, I mean, it's just a great sentence here because it's prophetic and also we've seen it happening. So it's also historic now. Such attractiveness fades quickly. So the attractiveness of entertainment. It cannot compete in the market of leisure pursuits, incorporating as it increasingly does various forms of religious titillation. In other words, if we're going to try to if we're going to try to compete with rock concerts and you know and, and the sort of secular entertainments out there, we're going to be miserably bad at it anyway. So yeah. all that's going to happen is that we, people will just stop going, and that's exactly where where that this spirit of applause. And of entertainment uh, has uh, proliferated is exactly where the mass attendance has uh, has declined most uh, um, drastically. Okay. And now, in this section we're taking, it's uh, standing and sitting dash liturgy and culture. He now goes on to talk about enculturation, very important. Uh, on page two fifteen slash two hundred one, third of the way down, the first and most fundamental way in which enculturation takes place is the unfolding of a Christian culture in all its dimensions. So that, that's enculturation, bringing Christian culture into the culture. And then below that, middle of the page, this kind of authentic enculturation of Christianity then creates culture in the stricter sense of the word. That is, it leads to artistic work that interprets the world anew in the light of God. That's just, I mean, he's, he's Christological, Trinitarian, theological, in his anthropology, you know, he, mm-hmm. he, he, in fact, his big speech on September 12, 2006, you know, in Regensburg, uh, the lecture which caused so much problem. I mean, his point there was not criticism of Islam, although that was part of the talk. It was criticism of the West, that our scientific way of looking at things has truncated thought so that the idea of something beyond the mm-hmm. spiritual, the transcendent, is no longer present mm-hmm. and so he's he's the one who's defending reason in its fullness against the i say truncation or uh, there's a french word for it right too small shrinking of uh, reduction reduction yeah of of reason and you know uh for those who might criticize him for not being sensitive enough to issues of social concern right yeah focusing as he does on liturgy and so on, as if these things aren't related, this list here of how the Christian culture and all of its dimensions, what, 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 is, what are the features of a true Christian culture? Oh, cooperation, social concern, respect for the poor, 
overcoming of class differences, care for the suffering and dying, a culture that educates mind and heart in a proper cooperation, a political culture, a culture of law, culture of dialogue, reverence for life, and so on. I mean, all of the things in that list have to do with how we treat one another after we leave the church. And one of the, one of the uh, examples for me of this relationship of Christianity culture is Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, uh, I went to I went to the graduation of medical medical school of one of my former students, uh, Michael Molaris, uh, and uh, they had a choice uh, for the oath they would take: the oath of Hippocrates or the oath of lasagna. I, I, I'm the kid. The oath of lasagna. There happened to be a medical professor named Lasagna who wrote this form of the oath, but. Hippocratic oath is first do no harm, but also no board, no board of practices, you know. And so that came pre-Christian. That's right. In Greece. But when it was maintained by Christianity, and once the, the Christian support for it disappeared, it no longer stood either. Yep. Well, you have to think that if Hippocrates thought that something like this was needed— then these practices were very common. And to differentiate between the doctors who wouldn't do these things, to set them apart as a diff- like a class of themselves, he comes up with this oath to say, you know, if you don't want your kids to do you in when you're old, come to this doctor over here because he's taken an oath to not take life. Yeah. One thing I do like is to encapsulate what... what um, uh, Cardinal Rastigas says about enculturation because it is such a, you know, it, it, it is such a uh, muddy issue the way that people talk about it. But when you basically encapsulate that authentic enculturation is evangelization. In other mm-hmm. words, that the, the best enculturation is when we baptize a culture yes. in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And, and then that, that new culture that emerges, or that renewed culture, perhaps, it's going it's to baptize the good things that are already there. And yes. it's going to exorcise the evil, wicked things that are there. And it's going to make a renewed, baptized culture. So really, evangelization is enculturation. Yes. And when you think, what what is what do we mean by things being saved anyway? Meaning saving the good that's there. If there weren't any good there, there'd be nothing to be saved. Good point. Right. Very good point. Can we move on to section four, gestures? Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the Orons on page 217, and then on 218, I didn't realize this, new paragraph, a later development was suggested for with hands joined. This comes from the world of feudalism. I never thought about that, joining your hands and putting it in the hands of the Lord. Uh-huh. Beautiful thought. Um, let's see here. Well, page, page 219 at the bottom, for the Greek humility was the editor of a slave, and they rejected it. The transformation of values, by the way, that's a Nietzschean term, you know. Yep. Transvaluation of values brought about by Christianity sees in it something different. Humility is the ontologically appropriate attitude. By our very being, it's appropriate to be humble. The state that corresponds to the truth about man, and as such, it becomes a fundamental attitude of Christian existence. Well, I have a question about this, too. I wish he were here because... Um, when he says that for Greeks, humility is the attitude of a slave, and yet all those Greek myths are warning against one thing, hubris. Over and over and over again, the person in the myth 
who gets too big for his boots is the one who's punished by the gods. And so uh, they, I, I'm just. Right, but the opposite, the, the, the remedy for hubris is humility. What is it? It's the via media. It's the middle way. Not too much, you know, don't be, don't be too proud, but don't, don't be oh. groveling either. Be, live in the middle like the Stoics. Okay. That's what I would say. Okay. I think that's a. In, in media, in, in the middle stands the virtue, you know. Okay. And so this idea of self-emptying to the degree that Christ does would be seen as maybe beneath a human being. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Thank you. That helps. That helps You're me. You're welcome. Yeah, it was uh, good, yeah. Uh, um, that, that's all I've got on that section. Section five is the human voice. You want to move to that or something else? Uh, well, I must confess that I assumed we wouldn't get beyond the human voice. So at this point, I'd have to confess. Okay. I think we, there's only a few pages left. We can go 10 more minutes and finish them, I think. No? Or do you want to stop here and finish it next week? Um, I'm humble. <laughs> well, I mean, if you, if you think if you well, only spend a minute, we don't need to. We don't need to. Oh, well, we should stop. We should stop. All right, let's stop time because okay. we're already at thirty-five minutes. Thomas says. And then what we can do is, uh, if if we, you know, finish a little sooner next week, we can have a summary reflection on the book, or just talk about something else. All right. Well, next week uh, we'll be finishing this. The week after that, uh, please start reading. The drama of atheist humanism. We're going to cover chapter one, but of course, you should read the uh, preliminary material there too. There's a foreword by Balthazar and a preface, but we'll take Feuerbach and Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. I know you started already. I did. I saw you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.